You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, your number one source for hunting and shooting in the great outdoors. Sit back and relax as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today. You will learn valuable tips and tricks that you can use on your next hunting trip into the field to make you a more successful hunter. Now here's your host, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Selms, and this is episode two, Hunting Red Fox with Pete Hower. If you don't know who Pete Hower is, Pete is just a good old Pennsylvanian boy who loves to hunt predators. He grew up hunting, fishing, and trapping, and his love of the outdoors grows stronger each year. He called his first predator in over 35 years ago and has not looked back since. Of all types of hunting he has done, calling in predators has never gotten old or lost its excitement. By education, Pete is a molecular biologist with a background in wildlife ecosystems. He is a clinical lab manager in a large neurology department and his profession took him to Baltimore, Maryland, where he has worked and resided for the last 25 years. Maryland has perhaps the highest density of red fox in the United States and Pete is right in the thick of it. He uses mouth calls on every hunt and started using fox pro callers the very first year they marketed them to the public. Shortly after that, he joined Fox Pro's field staff and has been using their calls ever since. He has been a state licensed wildlife controller and has dealt with many problematic predators. Pete is thrilled to be on the show today and hopes to one day hunt red fox in Australia. So without further ado, let's bring Pete on the show. Pete, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. This is great. No worries at all. So we'll just get started on a few questions. Just give us a bit of a personal background on uh, how you actually got into hunting. You know, was it a family tradition? Just give us a bit of background. Yeah, I'm the uh, I'm the last of eight kids in our family, and uh, I think uh, you know my dad been hunting for quite a few years before I came on the scene, and uh, you know I think uh, all the boys in our family and even a couple of girls tried hunting, and uh, so this is something that was in my family background, and I think my eldest brother probably did a lot to uh, foster that love of uh, hunting. He certainly got me into the trapping end of it, and I think the first time I ever predator hunted, I was with him as well. I know you love hunting the red fox. So in your area of Baltimore, Maryland, what's sort of the most predominant species of fox where you live? Is it the reds or the grays? Uh, definitely the uh, reds in this area. We have to go down to uh, southern Maryland or up to uh, Pennsylvania to get the uh, gray fox. So my particular county and where I hunt here is all reds. What sort of areas, you know, generally will you find the uh, red fox holding up, you know, generally during the day and or the night as well? You know, I think, Jason, um, this is going to vary a lot with terrain. Uh, it's going to vary with where you are. You know, you might be in an area that, that's uh, got real thick woods. And I think any time that a fox can get some cover and uh, feel more secure, that's where, he, that's where he's going to be. Uh, if they're in the middle of uh, breeding season, they might be in a convenient area for breeding. Or, you know, if they're hunting, could be a different different time of day. If it's, if it's daytime, and they're uh, uh, denning up, or they're just uh, kind of chilling out and not hunting uh, so intently. If there's if there's uh, a lot of pressure in your area, they might they might have be in a thicket on a hillside where they have a commanding view around them. And uh, if they've got a good thicket around them, they can also hear if anything is coming uh, their way that might be a, a you know a predator against them. Okay, so what uh, what's the difference in behavior between the gray fox and the red fox? Uh, I have heard you know, the gray fox is quite aggressive and the red fox is very timid, especially in Australia. It's a very sort of you know, timid animal. It can get spooked very easily. So what's that difference in behavior between the two? Well, I think in the States you have the same thing here. Um, you know, uh, the red fox on average can be a, a little bit larger than the gray fox, but the, the gray fox have what they call a semi-retractable claw. 
you know, these are both animals that are uh, crepuscular or, you know, pretty active around dusk and dawn, but they're also looked at as being nocturnal too. So they're pretty active at nighttime. Uh, I think that, um, you know, in this particular area, the reds will tend to hunt more in open areas at nighttime and the grays will, will hunt more the thickets at night. Uh, that's just uh, around this particular area. Okay, so what are the habits of the red fox? They generally, you know, w- you know, when you're calling, do they generally like sleep throughout the day and hunt a lot at night, or or is it possible to call them, you know, any time of the day? Well, I think you can call them at any time, and certainly I have uh, called them throughout the daytime. But I think your odds are around here where they get hunted. I think your odds calling them out in the daytime are much much lower. I think that's where uh, certainly a motion decoy comes into play. If you're trying to call them in the daytime, I think that's a that's a really really big plus is having a motion decoy because they're uh, being timid animals that they are. They're going to come in. They're going to sit up on a hillside somewhere where they have a commanding view of the area. They're they're going to sneak into a, a call set. They might watch you from 200 yards away. And you know if they hear a call and they're not seeing any kind of movement from a, a prey you know a, a prey animal in distress. Uh, they might just bug out of there, or they might just sit there and wait until they see you move. And eventually, the hunter will probably move. He might wipe his nose or, you know, shift his uh, seating position or something. But they'll see that and they'll take off. And m- many times, the hunter doesn't even see that. So nighttime, I think you've got the the cloak of darkness, and uh, it just makes it a lot easier for the hunter. I think the animal is a little bit more um, more likely to come in at nighttime. Uh, a question that I had, someone wanted me to ask you as, as well, is are the red fox, I mean, have you ever hunted them in different countries? Because, you know, our red fox can definitely vary in size, you know, from the, the you know, the, small, the smaller females to the to the older male dog foxes. So I guess the question was, do they vary in size from country to country? And have you have you been anywhere where you've seen different countries of red fox and, and, and what's the size? You know, I have not hunted them in different countries, uh, so I'm a little bit uh, behind there. You know, the, the, the fox uh, in general are, it's it's kind of interesting, they are one of the most widely distributed uh, mammals on the planet. Uh, they're found all over the place from very hot environments, and, and the sizes of them can vary greatly from Asian fox to, you know, some of your Aussie fox to what we have over here, some of our more northern climate animals, which have tend to have a larger body mass index. Uh, you know, to to be able to survive uh, cold climates. So I think that, um, you know, how they're going to respond is going to also have a lot to do with, you know, whether they're the top dog on the predator chain in their particular area. You know, if they've got coyotes around, they may come in much, much more timidly than, say, a fox that has nothing else but other fox around. You know, if if you have uh, a lot of fox in your area and the competition for food is uh, tough, but they're not likely to get maybe killed by another animal coming in, then... They might be more more readily, um, you know, wanting to come into that call. Just say somebody was getting involved in, you know, maybe they, you know, want to start, you know, calling in red fox. You know, uh, what would you recommend? Would you say, are you using hand calls or, you know, uh, hand and mouth calls or electronic calls? What would you recommend to say someone just getting out there wanting to start uh, red fox calling? You know, I think uh, it's it's you don't have to go a real expensive route to get started in this. You know, you can you can get a gun. You can go anything from a a 22 or a shotgun up to your centerfire rifles. You can head out there with a, a mouth call. And, you know, the, the keys are to just get out there and uh, do your scouting, find out where the animals are. I find some of the biggest uh, mistakes that people make is they go out and they hunt areas uh, extensively. And maybe they don't really have a large pop, uh, population of them in their particular area. And they can waste a lot of time in one area. And I say it's, it's a great thing to go out there, find some tracks, uh, find some scat, you know, find, find the... Uh, 
find where the animals are and then start hunting them in that in that particular area. I think for a beginner, you know, starting off with a closed read call is probably an easy way to go. Um, some of your open read calls are good in that they might not freeze up uh, as easily if it's really cold in your area. And you get down to single digit temperatures or below zero temps, uh, you can freeze up some of your closed read calls pretty easily. So um, yeah. I think I'd just start out with, uh, you know, a simple setup, maybe on a mouth call and, and head out and give it a try. No, that's a good point. I actually just went on a uh, three-day hunt just this past weekend, and you know, you're talking about calling, you know, where there's actual foxes. I mean, I thought the property that I went to was just fantastic for, you know, foxes, but I think there wasn't a food source. I made about, you know, 15 or 16 stands over the weekend, and just nothing came to the call. So I'm not sure if there was foxes in the area or it was just too high up in the mountains. So yeah, it's quite, you know, some good points you got there too. So, uh, so let's say you're using uh, electronic caller. What do you think the most successful sounds are to be calling, say, red fox? Well, you know, I'm on the first half of Fox Pro game calls, and uh, you know, not to not to toot their horn or anything, but they've got a great call library, uh, and Steve uh, Dillon has has really done a lot for that call library. He's got all kinds of animals on there. For me, I tend to use a very non-invasive uh, call species like birds, uh, you know, small birds that are very busy sounds, very high pitched, and uh, you know, or or for me, uh, I think the fox, the red fox uh, in particular, respond really, really well to a high pitched, busy call. So it could be, even be, uh, you know, anything from rodent squeaks or uh, another very productive one is uh, very young baby rabbit calls. I'd have to say my go-to calls would probably be like the the Nutty Nuthatch or the uh, Tufted Titmouse Tantrum uh, that Fox Pro has. Those are just great calls. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so when calling, speaking of using some of those sounds, which, which I've actually got myself, uh, is calling volume. How important is calling volume? Because I know I've been guilty of uh, getting on stand with the uh, Jackrabbit Distress and just like pumping the CS24 up to like, you know, 35 and 40, just really trying to get that sound out there. So how important is... Uh, uh, volume, does it scare the fox off? Well, you know, uh, Jason, I, I've seen gray fox that just love it loud, and uh, you know, you, you turn on a gray fox fight call, and the gray fox just come running in, and they don't care how loud it is. Uh, I've seen that at nighttime many times. I've also watched many, many times where uh, red fox will really back off in, in this particular area, they'll back off on a really loud call. You know, I, I was talking with uh, Jeff Thomason from uh, Predator Pursuit Guys, and He's uh, quite an active uh, hunter. He's been over to Australia. I want to talk to somebody who's done extensive hunting over there with uh, red fox, and he was over there. He did really, really well. And you know, he said most of their most of their animals they did they did kill at night while they were lamping. And they um, he said they used very, very loud calls. They were calling from a vehicle and just covering a lot of territory. And you know, he said he had they had fox coming up to him that way that were were responding. In my particular area, I do much, much better if I'm on a, a lower call volume. So I'll start out with a very low volume. I just go to start out with just a couple squeaks uh, on a real low volume and see if there's anything real close in the area. And then if nothing goes on there, I'll go to a low sounding call, a low volume call. If nothing again shows up, then I'll uh, ramp up my sound to cover more ground if there's any other animals, but then I'll ramp it back down again. So that if the animal starts responding, say from a half mile away, that you know it's going to get progressively louder the closer they get so I'll ramp it back down again and uh, that seems to work best around here so I would say that you know when in doubt if you're having problems uh, calling in the animals uh, try backing off a little bit on the calls and you know if you're calling in daytime I also tend to call differently you know my, my day and night sets are very different on how I call 
Uh, daytime, I tend to call very, very sporadically. Uh, I'm usually just calling it first or last light. Uh, midday, I don't really have a whole lot of luck, to be honest with you. Um, I think, uh, again, a motion decoy would help out there a lot, but um, I will call more sporadically in the daytime so that the animals come and hunt me. I, I don't want them to just um, sit and watch uh, calls nonstop, trying to figure out what's going on. You know, you, you want to give them just a little bit in the daytime and they'll come look for you. And that's really what you want. You want them to move and not, not have them sit around and watch you move. So, so what sort of uh, periods will you have? Will you just mute the caller or turn the caller right down? Like how long will you wait in between, say, you know, maybe muting the caller, like 30 seconds, a minute? What's your average? Well, I think, uh, again, this depends upon the area and the topography of the terrain, you know, how far, the, how far away the animals might be or something like that. But if I'm going to call uh, in daylight, if somebody says to me, how are you going to call an animal in, in the daylight conditions without a light? It's probably going to be at very first light, so I'll probably walk into the area in pitch dark, just like you were deer hunting around here, uh, going nice and quietly uh, from a good area where you're not likely to be smelled, you know, watching your downwind sides. Uh, I also am going to pay very close attention to where the wind is blowing or where the thermal currents are going uh, so that I don't have animals that can easily sneak downwind of me, because that's going to be one of the first things they're going to want to try and do, especially on a daylight set. They're going to try and, you know, get downwind of you. So, um, you know, definitely, definitely watch that. So, so say, uh, say a new person was getting into uh, calling, you know, what's sort of the best hand calls for a beginner? I know uh, you guys have the open and close read calls over there, and we have some sort of different type uh, tenor field and button whistles, which are like a tin whistle over here. So what would you recommend for a beginner that's never blown a hand call before? Well, uh, I think that, again, the terrain has a lot to do with it. I've got some calls that are quite loud, and I've got some that are much softer. You know, your button whistles like you have are going to be considerably uh, softer call. You might want to use those more for a coaxer call or in close, or if you're in uh, an area with thick brush where, you know, you can make more stands and you might have animals closer to you. If you're out in more open area, your your tenor field uh, whistle like you have is going gonna, is gonna to call, you know, considerably further distance. I would say for me, you know, you can use uh, just a, a closed read call and you can vary your pitch and your sound, uh, your volume uh, considerably with those pretty easily. Yeah. So they do, that, do they mimic uh, like a, a distressed rabbit? Yeah, exactly. Speaking of like uh, the elements, does does the wind affect your calling, uh, like strong winds or rain? Because I know when I've called... Uh, red foxes uh, not so much during the high winds but generally during either just before it's going to rain or during the rain or just after when it's wet i find i'm just not having much luck so how much does it affect it and what can we do to maybe be, be you know be more successful well i think there's all different kinds of uh, weather scenarios i think most predator hunters will tell you uh, you know almost anybody that's been around predator hunting for a while will tell you that hunting the storm fronts either coming or going are both great times to call you know literally watch your barometer when you see that thing starting to drop off those animals are going to get busy feeding uh that the prey animals are going to be out uh, before they have to take cover from a bad storm and um, you know that the, the predators know that as well and sometimes you know if your prey animals are out and the winds are kicking up or something like that the the the, the predators are actually getting a little bit of uh, motion uh coverage on themselves so they're walking through and they're, they're hunting rabbit what happens you and if that wind is starting to kick up understand that maybe they're tougher to spot by a prey animal as well so um, i think one of the things that a wind will do is it will concentrate where animals are you're going to find animals in the leeward sides of hills more you're going to find them in the valleys you're going to hunt areas that are more wind protected 
and again, you know, what it, what are we considered to be a high wind? You know, I think when you start getting above 15, 20 miles an hour uh, wind, things start to get tougher. Uh, hunt those uh, concentrated pockets where you have more still areas. And also, you're going to have to make more uh, calls. You're going to have to call louder, and you're going to have to make uh, your sets closer together. As far as I mean, as far as the uh, rain goes, I've I've killed plenty of fox in uh, in the rain, both uh, with approaching storm fronts, you know, storm fronts that are leaving, and while it's raining. Uh, you know, those animals have to eat too, and uh, you know, they're I don't really think that they're going to be that afraid of uh, some rain. I think uh, bitter cold and heavy snow might be something something a little different, but. I don't think around here it doesn't seem like the rain affects them whole lot when it comes to falling. Yeah, luckily we live in Australia, huh? We don't we don't have the sort of snows you guys do. So, <laughs> so okay, so okay, say you're setting up your uh, stand, Pete. How do you set up your fox stand? You know, to ensure that you're going to be successful. What's some, you know, even just a few tips of how you set up, just so people can go out there and become more successful. Well, I think uh, you know once you found where those where those fox are, where the where the sign is, I'm going to walk into a farm or a ranch or where, wherever you're hunting, and I'm going to look for where the pockets of cover are. You know, uh, these animals, for the most part, yes, they can sometimes run right out in the open, but even at dusk conditions or if you have any kind of daylight, uh, these animals, and even at nighttime, they're going to try and use that that little pocket of cover. It might be a finger, might be a you know, a finger of brush coming coming out along a tree line, or it might be uh, along a fence line where you've got brush piled up. If they can use that, or even a ditch or a stream bed, if they can use that to come into an area and have a little bit more cover, they're going to use that nine times out of ten, uh, at least in this area. I would imagine that you're going to have uh, similar conditions there too. I'll, I'll walk into an area. I'll check to way which which way the wind is going. I'll set up my collar, usually on a crosswind. Uh, so that the, the fox will have to try and if he tries to cut down wind of me, uh, it's not going to be a good situation. There might be a stream there that he can't cross very easily or a very steep hill, uh, hill there or maybe a real open area that he doesn't want to get caught out in on the downwind side. So you can kind of force where animals are going to come out. But likewise, you know, don't get where you set up where uh, an animal can very easily sneak downwind of you, maybe in some brush, and then you wonder, geez, why have I not called in that animal? You know, if, if you approach that brush pile from the downwind side, you're more likely to call him to the edge of that brush pile where he might come out and you can get a shot at him. So how, how far are you generally putting your collar away? Are you like, uh, you know, 30 yards, 50 yards? What's, what's, the, what's the general rule? Will it depend on, you know, what sort of land you're hunting, whether it's open land or thicket? Well, I think it depends a lot on whether it's, a, again, a daytime set or a nighttime. If it's daytime, I want to get that collar a little bit away from so the animal's attention. It's focused on that and and away from where I might have any kind of movement going on. You know, if I'm turning my head to look, and the caller is very close to me, he's more likely to see me. If that caller is say 50 yards away or 40 yards away, uh, he's going to be looking in that direction. You know, if it's a daytime set, I might have a motion decoy over there. He's going to key in on that motion and that sound. Uh, likewise, it's going to be completely different setup if it's at nighttime. Nighttime, I want that caller very close to me. For the simple reason, I want to be able to see those animals' eyes shine at nighttime with the light. The tap of the lucidum from their eyes will light up and you'll get a reflective uh, shine coming off of their eyes. And if that caller is set out there 50 yards away, you might have an animal coming in on a crosswind. He's now looking in another direction away from you at the caller and you're not likely to see him. Um, and, and it can be, you know, if you're lamping at nighttime, you've got to understand too that um, – you can be you can be sitting very very close to somebody with your spotlight, and they may they may see the animal's eye shine and you may not see it. 
so, and you could be sitting right next to them. So it can be that close. You know, sometimes I, I've been sitting with guys already and say, hey, the fox is right over there. Shoot him, kill, kill the fox. And the guy says, I don't see it. And I'm looking at him, uh, the guy's sitting four feet away from me, and I can see the fox's eyes shining like the, like a car's headlight, and the guy can't see it. So uh, keeping that call close to you is a good thing. Um, and I've also had times where if if the guy next to me is seeing uh, eye shine and I'm not, I might just give a, a simple lip squeak, and the fox will turn just slightly and look in my direction, and boom, there's his eyes, and there's my shot. Mm. So I know we just spoke about decoys before. So uh, how often on like are you using a decoy on every stand, and do you think it actually actually like helps the stand? Yeah, I think uh, you know in in daytime again that fox is going to want to use uh, all of his senses in the daytime, the eyes in particular. You know, so you, they have got great great noses. They're going to try to get downwind of you. They're going to initially hear that call and, and bring them in. But they want confirmation with as many uh, senses as they can get. Uh, and if they don't, if, if they hear a call going off in the daytime, they don't see any, any kind of motion or a decoy going, uh, I've seen fox just bug out. And again, that might depend on on how pressured they are in your area. If they're not hunted very heavily, if you haven't had a lot of guys come through there and pressure them or call call at them and then, you know, screw up a calling set, then, you know, they're not likely to put two and two together all the time. But if they're in a pressured area, a, a, a call decoy makes a tremendous difference on a daytime set at nighttime i think it's very helpful on a uh, full moon night uh you know a kiss of death for for me around this area can be these full moon nights that are very bright Uh, around here they don't want to respond very well to that but i've seen uh where they'll come out into an area and they'll sneak in when they see a decoy uh, moving out there because they can say okay well I see, uh, you know, I can see the decoy. I can, I can uh, see movement on what I hear is a, a prey animal that's in distress. So uh, I would say the decoys are, are best on a full moon night when it's bright out. Maybe if you had snow, you were hunting in a cold area or it was very bright conditions or daytime set. Some great advice there, definitely. So when calling, say, red fox, do you often, say, say what percentage of the time would you say they, you know, ch- like, do they charge the caller or do you often find they'll often hang up, you know, it, you know, depending on, you know, what sort of land you're hunting or they hang up at like 50 yards or, cause I find when sometimes when I'm hunting, I'll find they, uh, especially open areas, they'll charge into about, you know, maybe 50 or 60 yards. And then I see them slowly disappear like into the Creek line and they'll start downwinding the caller. Again, I think uh, how loud you're calling might have some effect on that. Uh, probably the, the density of Fox in your area, you know, uh, how uh, a small female might come in more timidly than, say, a large male in the area. You know, if you have if you have a dominant alpha male in an area, he might come ripping into a set because he's not afraid of uh, getting torn up by another fox. Whereas uh, a small female or a small male might come in much more timidly. So it can depend a lot on the pressure in your area and and how many fox are in that area. It can also depend on how hungry they are too. Yeah, no, some great points there too. So, all right, so let, let's get into the uh, firearms. What sort of firearms, you know, are you generally using to hunt fox? You know, shotguns and, and generally what type of loads are you using as well? You know, I, I tend to use, um, if I can, I'll take a shotgun and a rifle on a set. Uh, if I've got a fast runner that comes in, I'll have a shotgun sitting right there. I use a, a Beretta Extrema uh, gas auto uh, shotgun in my particular area with a red dot on it. And that just makes uh, life really easy. So I've got a, a light mounted to the gun, and then I've got a red dot uh, sight on top of it for shotgun setup. And then uh, for rifle setup, I've got uh, center fires um, for longer distances. You could even use like a 17 HMR 
uh, rim fire for close-up uh, shooting where you, let's say maybe you, you can't have a very loud gun that might be uh, something that would that would work for you uh, they do not uh, work very well if you don't have a perfect shot you know if you have a glancing or a, a trotting animal I would say it's not a perfect setup there I use a hornet a lot myself I like it a hornet because um, you know they're, they're pushing probably about maybe 31 3200 feet per second with a 35 grain VMAX pretty easy on the pelts uh, they don't tear up the pelts as much and uh, it's fairly effective um, you know some of your larger caliber center fires are just uh, you know they really tear up the animal if you're not saving pelts it doesn't really matter i guess but um, you know i grew up trapping and uh, calling fox and i skin out what i get and tan them and you know so i, I hate to see a pelt get blown up it seems like a waste to me yeah, yeah. So, so what in, in your Beretta Extrema? What sort of uh, you know shotgun shells are you using in them? Well, I've used. Uh, I started using more and more heavy shot. I used uh, a lot of uh, copper plated BBs for a while, and they work pretty well. You know, hardened shot works pretty nicely. Uh, you do have to watch out. You know, for the different chokes. I tell everybody when it comes to shotguns, uh, checking your chokes and your patterns is everything. And it's amazing how many guys say, "Oh, well, you know, the tighter the choke you get, the." the tighter your pattern is going to be, but that's not necessarily always the case. Sometimes you have such very hardened shot now, you know, you're some of your heavy shots or your or your copper-plated shots. If you go with a, a very short forcing cone choke and an extremely tight choke, sometimes you can get rebounding uh, as your shot is coming out of that choke. So, um, you know, for instance, I have, a, you know, a setup with heavy shot on my gun where a full choke will actually pattern tighter than an extra full choke and it's just because of that rebounding so and and it might also say you might also say well geez i'm going to go in the brush here i'm going after gray fox and it could be very fast uh shooting at very very close range i might throw a modified choke in there uh and i think brian downs is, is somebody that was talking to me about this recently and and he's uh, got me thinking a lot more about this that it's a, a really good idea to you know if you're going to be in a tight area with a lot of brush and possible fast shooting throwing a, a more open choke in there. Um, if you're going to have a little bit farther shots, maybe out in a more open field or at nighttime, say you're going to reach out to 50 plus yards and then sure, maybe go to a full choke or something like that. Yeah. Now, so how many, say if you're using a shotgun, what, what sort of, you know, I'm not sure how many pellets are in the heavy shot, but uh, what are we looking, you know, how many pellets in the kill zone are we looking to sort of bring down the fox? Is it, you know, three or four? Is it nine or ten? Well, I think that depends a lot on your shot size. Um, you know, I'm I'm a guy that's going to say, well, I'm only going to shoot out to a particular distance. Uh, I think even with a three and a half inch 12 gauge, which is about the equivalent of a 10 gauge, um, I'm still only going to probably go out to about maybe 55 yards or so. And some guys say, oh yeah, you can go out to 60 plus on that thing, but I'm going to limit myself to about 55 yards. I know I've got a good pattern out there. Uh, I've got quite a few in uh, you know in my patterning board at that distance, so. Uh, for me, inside of a, a 30-inch circle, I've got, oh, geez, a lot of pellets in there. So that's one of the advantages, too, of, uh, you know, say, a three-and-a-half-inch uh, is that you are you are pushing a lot of lead out of there. That's also the benefit of having the uh, gas autoloader, too, isn't it? <laughs> definitely, definitely makes life a lot easier, and it's also... It makes uh, follow-up on doubles a lot quicker, too. Yeah, exactly. So I know you like to keep your pelts. So if you're using a rifle and you're using, like, say, your 17 or your Hornet, um, what's the best, uh, say, the best area to, for shot placement on a Fox? You know, is it you aiming for, like, down the chest? Are you sort of aiming just above the shoulder? What's, what's the best shot placement if you're, you know, regardless of whether you want to keep the pelts or not? 
Well, I think uh, it's really helpful when people just look at a skinned fox because uh, they get a, a better idea of where the largest kill zones are. And, you know, fox are often real fluffed up and everything, and we think that they're a lot larger than they are. And I think for, for the, the young hunter or the new hunter that's going out there, they think that their kill zone is a lot larger than it is. You might have a kill zone that's only four inches or something like that uh, uh, on a fox. And for me, if I'm looking at that fox, I'm saying, okay, well, I'm probably not going to pull my shot because I'm, you know, pretty careful about that. But, you know, you're up and down if you... If you misjudge your distance a little bit and you're higher or lower on that animal, uh, I'm going to look at it and say, okay, where is my greatest area that I have um, the ability to screw up higher or lower on that animal and, and still kill the animal? And, you know, it might be directly in the chest where I'm in line with the legs that, you know, should I want to be a little bit lower, I, I might still take out a, take them out uh, on the low side. So that's going to give you the most uh, grace uh for shooting error or for distance, uh, you know, if you're misjudging distance on something. If you've got a flat gun like a, a 17 Remington centerfire and you're shooting inside of 250 yards, you know, you can stay on fur the whole time, you know. So it really depends a lot on what you're shooting, what your distances are. But I'm always going to go for the largest part of the chest uh, if I can. So say the fox has a number of senses, you know. I know they've got smell and they've got great vision and also great hearing. Let's say in order, what do you think's the most important? Because I've found a lot of the time, my probably biggest downfall is that I'm on stand and I've got my decoy and my caller, and then yeah, that they might be coming downwind and they're just scenting me and they're like just hightailing it out of there. So I find that's the biggest one that I've been caught with, and I've I've been caught a number of times with that. So what do you think the most important is, and 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 in which orders is most important? I think that they always want to go to to the scent. You know, I mean, at nighttime, obviously, I think for for a person who's calling, you know, if we had foxes that were deaf and couldn't hear a call, then uh, we'd be in big trouble. But uh, uh, we we would probably not kill any fox at that point. But uh, I think that they're going to start out with a hearing, you know, to bring them into a call. But they're gonna they're gonna want to see something. And at nighttime, if they can't see it in particular, they're going to try and sneak downwind of you. But daytime and nighttime, they're gonna they're gonna go for that nose all the time if they can. Uh, so I, I know that's kind of a, a bogus answer, but it can vary a little bit. You know, I think what I have seen with the decoy is a decoy. One of the really strong points about a decoy is you call in a fox. It hears the call. It it now can see it. And if it can see it, sometimes it'll bypass that that desire to say, hey, I have to get downwind because he's looking at it. He's going, hey, there's my rabbit. He's moving. I got to get in there now. I'm not going to necessarily worry about running downwind see if there's danger when I can see it's a rabbit bouncing around right there, you know, so a, a decoy can help. So say, uh, you know, when, say when hunting red fox, I know uh, I personally wear camouflage head to toe, but, you know, how, how important is um, camouflage? Is it overrated or is it just, is it important to get in full camo? You know what, I think that um, I've called in fox wearing all different kinds of things, just street clothing, you know, jeans and a, a shirt, um, I think that the most important thing, and I've called them in uh, deer season where I've had them come all the way across the field directly to me, and I was wearing head-to-toe fluorescent orange out in the sunlight. You know, I had to look like a giant pumpkin glowing out there, and I've called them all the way across the field and had them come straight to my tree within five feet of my tree uh, when I was when I was dressed like that. So I think, honestly, that it's more, um, you know, it's more of a motion thing. So they're going to pick up on motion very, very good. They have, they have very good uh, visual acuity for picking up on that. They've got a higher uh, 
uh, number or percentage of um, uh, receptors for nighttime vision than we have. So their color vision might not be as good as ours, but they've got definitely got better nighttime vision than us. Um, but they're also very, very uh, slick when it comes to, um, you know, detecting motion. So I would say you could go out there, you could dress in your street clothes, but as long as you're not moving around a whole lot, um, you know, you're probably going to do okay. Going back about our stands, how are you generally getting into your stand? Uh, like where you hunt, are you generally, you know, driving your truck in? Do you have your motorbike? Are you sort of parking the truck and going on foot? Well, again, this will this can d- depend a lot on uh, how much ground you're covering, how large your sets are, you know, how big your ranches are. If I'm on a small farm, I'm going to probably park down at the farmhouse. They're used to people parking down there, and they're used to cars being down there. And yet, at the same time, on a small dairy farm in Pennsylvania or Maryland, if they're not used to a car necessarily driving out in the middle of the fields at nighttime, for me, that's not a good idea. We can't hunt out of a out of a truck uh, where I hunt. Uh, it's not legal. Um, but yet at the same time, if you're hunting huge areas in Australia, you can cover a lot more ground and I understand it's legal to hunt that way there. That's right. Yeah. You can, it depends where you go. If you're on private property, you can hunt, uh, from, you know, four wheel drives at night. You can hunt with lights. There's no issue. If you go in one of the, uh, like what you guys call BLM land type, uh, government land where you can't hunt at night. So it's only during the day. Right. Well, I think, you know, covering more ground and doing more sets, always increases your numbers you know uh, I think what happens a lot of times with the, the new callers is they get out there they make a set or two they get all excited about it they get out there and they walk out a little bit you know maybe some of them are half afraid of the dark or half afraid of what they're going to call in or not call in or whether they're going to see something or, or maybe they're not even paying attention but I think the more sets you make uh, the more ground you cover uh, the greater your odds and if you want to increase your numbers, uh, start making more sets and covering more ground. One of the questions uh, someone wanted me to ask you as well, say like in, we have breeding season here around uh, winter, which is generally your summer, which is in the middle of the year, June, July. So when they're obviously mating up to breed, we have a problem. And a lot of guys don't hunt foxes throughout the winter because they find they just don't come to any of the uh, hand calls or the electronic calls. So you know, basically what can we do over here to try and you know get them to come in? Is there anything that we're not doing or anything we can do to sort of, you know, in, you know obviously they're thinking about mating. So what can we do to get them to come to a call possibly? Right. Well, I think in Australia, your breeding season, as, as I think you had mentioned earlier, were uh, around October, November. Uh, in this particular area, we're looking at uh, December, January, our big breeding seasons here, late December, uh, January. And we have the same kind of thing here too. And I think it could be a number of factors could be, uh, you know, you, that, that can affect your calling. And by late season, they've probably been called more in this particular area. So a little more call shy that way. But they've got their they've got their brain on breeding at that point in time, and it, and it is the one time of year that I've had more success using uh, fox vocalizations. Um, you know, they, they can become uh, very vocal animals out out in some of these areas. We get out in the, the farms in uh, Maryland, and they can really you can hear them barking all over the place, and uh, that is a time where I've I've used uh, food calls at time. You know, a, a prey animal, a distress call, and not. You know, I might get an eye shine and then boom, they're running away and they're doing something else. And then you find out that when you start scanning the field that there's three or four of them out there and they're breeding and they're running around doing that thing. So um, that's a time where I've turned around, turned a, a fox vocalization call on and had, you know, multiple fox run to me. So, um, you know, consider uh, some fox vocalization calls during that period of time. 
so so what you're saying is it'd be, it'd be better to use say the fox vocalization say at night rather than during the day uh yeah i think so i mean you know animals i think are more at risk uh when they're in breeding mode uh, and i think uh, they tend to be more comfortable uh doing that at nighttime at least that's what we see around here you know when the, when the heat of the rut is on sure they can be breeding you know real heavily in the daytime as well um especially if there's a lot of competition uh to, to breed those uh females um but here i think they definitely uh, show more breeding activity at nighttime yeah now the great advice there too so let's say you know what, what does a hunter do let's say we you know we're using our calls either hand calls or electronic calls and you know the, the the fox tries to you know hold up you know maybe you know 50 100 yards and just say you know you might not be comfortable with taking the shot or you may be only carrying the shotgun what can what can we do or what calls can we use to possibly you know try and break that fox into coming in well i think there's a couple things you can do number one uh you can turn your call down uh, really soften that sound so that they feel like the animal is going away and they, they, a lot of times will get more curious their their curiosity will be peaked they'll come in a lot of times just turning turning the sound down sometimes they just turn it off and they'll get real curious about it. what is going on has that animal died has something killed it is it there can i eat it you know and they'll come in that way sometimes and you know it's tough because everybody thinks well the more i call the better my odds are and that's not always the case uh, changing your call so uh, sounds can be a tremendous asset I've had an animal, you know, hang up on me many, many times. I've watched this, and um, you know, as a, a with you know, geez, you know, you, you went through a lot of calls on that set. We might have had an animal that that hung up on us, and um, many times I've had an animal that was sitting there at 300 yards. He didn't want anything to do with a particular rabbit call, and I went to a bird calls. I'm gonna went through seven or eight different bird calls, and I hit a real high pitched, busy bird call. And, you know, back the sound down a little bit. Boy, just take off running, you know. So he, he heard something that he really liked. And guys said, well, Jesus, is that okay to do that? And switch the calls like that. And, you know, I've, I've had uh, nights where one particular call was working really, really well. Uh, so for me, I, I, I will change calls a lot. Another thing is if you have an animal that has hung up on you uh, at nighttime, you can take your spotlight, hold it out in front of you. Uh, as long as you are not lighting up your location, uh, you know, your legs, your walking uh, you can hold that spotlight out in front of you. Um, you know, I know a couple guys that do this. Uh, I've hunted with uh, Mike Dillon doing this already. And, um, you know, if you keep that light out in front of you, you're in the dark. And what you're effectively doing is shutting down the animal's pupils so that they don't see you very well. And you can cover a lot of distance. I've covered 200 yards uh, on an animal that way. Still had them hanging up, uh, got within shooting range, and then killed the animal. Uh, so consider that as well. And I think that's where it's really important to, to run, uh, you know, shields around the outsides of your light so you don't get stray light on your location. Yeah, no, exactly. I I find sometimes at night, you know, they just come to the call and I'm shining the light right at them and it doesn't seem to bother them sometimes. They, they just come straight in. So um, definitely some good advice there. So uh, let, let's say I gave you, I think as far as I'm aware, you've got a uh, Fox Pro Fury, I think, if I'm correct. Uh, what's the best, say, if I gave you a caller and I said put the best three electronic calls on there that we can, you know, we can use for Red Fox, what would they be? Well, I say probably my top uh, calls would be uh, a very young rabbit, a very young, high-pitched, uh, busy rabbit sound. Uh, the the lightning jack and dying jack, um, and I don't even have jack rabbits around here. We've got all cottontails, but those are really deadly calls. Uh, and also, um, most of the bird calls uh, are just are great. Uh, and oddball calls sometimes you know i've had young turkey calls in areas where we have no turkeys 
and it's just a very enticing call. Um, another trick that works really well is, you know, if you've got waterfowl in an area, um, I had a fox that was giving me the slip for quite some time. And, you know, I, I've given this example multiple times. Other guys have probably heard this in different areas. And I had a fox that would hang up on me, go out 300 yards, and he'd hang up in the cattle. He wouldn't come in and give me a safe shot. I couldn't, couldn't get a shot on this animal. This went on for a while. Finally, I went down in a stream bed uh, in broad daylight before, you know, dusk or anything came on so I could slip into that area uh, when, when the animal probably wasn't out there. And I just waited for dusk. And then uh, once dusk came, uh, I turned on a uh, mallard uh, duckling call. And I was down in a stream bed. And that, that fox came running in like he was on a, a rope, uh, like he was just coming straight to me. And it was He thought he was going to get a free meal. Yeah, it was a call that he expected to hear, uh, a little mallard duckling. It was an easy-sounding dinner for him because it was a duckling versus uh, you know, a whole bunch of ducks, which might spook. Uh, it was down in a stream bed, so it was a call he was expecting to hear, but one he had probably not heard by anybody else that was calling. Uh, so the oddball calls like that sometimes can be really good. You know, prairie dog calls in this area. There's no prairie dogs in, in Maryland, and that call can work wonders around here. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, we have the, I took some advice from you before, and I've used the uh, nutty nut hatch and the uh, tit mouse tantrum from Fox Pro as well. And I mean, I don't even know if that's even a real, is it, if that's an animal or <laughs> in America or what, but uh, the red fox in Australia just love it. Same as the jackrabbit. We don't sort of have any type of jackrabbits around where I hunt or anything like that. And they just, I don't know, they just love the sound. Yeah, some of the screaming rabbit calls do pretty well too, like a horse scream. Uh, a lot of guys will say rasp kills. You know, if you have a raspy sound that is high-pitched, uh, it's really good for, for fox. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, as one of the final questions, tell us maybe about a, um, you know, one of your best hunting stories or, you know, whether it be, you know, most kills in a day or even something funny. What's the, like, a memorable hunt that you've been on that you can share with everyone? Oh, geez, there's been a lot of good hunts, uh, a lot of fun ones. Um you know, I think probably when I was about maybe uh, 11 or 12 years old, I was out with my dad hunting at our farm in uh, Pennsylvania, and I had, uh, this is kind of how I got my start, and we were hunting rabbits and pheasants out in the uh, cut cornfields, and I saw a, uh, a rabbit that had been killed and uh, partially eaten, and I said to my dad, I said, geez, you know, there's going to be fox coming here tonight, so I got I to gotta hang out here and, and uh, hunt hunt this uh, fox that'll be back, coming back here for this thing, and my dad said, okay, you know, he went back to the farmhouse and, and uh, I took his, he had a browning, uh, an old browning from uh, Belgium. And uh, I climbed up this pine tree quite a ways up this pine tree so I could see where this uh, partially eaten rabbit was. And I, 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 even at that age, probably 11, 12 years old, I was carrying around a predator call because I was sure that one day I was going to call predators. And, uh, you know, so I, I got up there and I started calling. And I remember the chills going down my spine just from hearing my own call. I had no flashlight in my hands and it was starting to get dark. And uh, I started to see uh, forms coming, walking down the field in this cut cornfield. You know, it's kind of a yellow, yellow cornfield in the fall in uh, Pennsylvania. And I saw these forms coming. And I th- at first, I thought there were multiple fox that had to be coming. And then I realized there were raccoons. And so I picked up the, the gun and I'm out on this tree. And I think I'm probably shaking. And, you know, here I am about 11 years old out in the pitch dark, no flashlight. And, uh, you know, about to, to get kill my first uh, predator. And I picked out the largest coon that I could find, and I, I raised up the gun, and I couldn't see the, the beads on the gun because it was too dark. So I put my, my white fingers on either side of the barrel so I could line up, and I shot, and I was kind of blinded by the, the, the flame that came out of the end of the barrel. And I heard all kinds of noise, and this thing ran to the base of my tree and was tearing up the ground, ran into the thicket, and it was right at the base of my tree going crazy and making all kinds of noise. 
And so here, here's this 11-year-old kid. He's all scared to get out of the tree because there's a raccoon down there that had been shot. And uh, so that was kind of my first, uh, you know, attempt at uh, all of this. And then I waited, you know, within seconds, the, the motion stopped. The animal was dead. But, you know, you're afraid to get out of the tree. So I probably sat there for a good solid half hour, 40 minutes, deciding how am I going to get out of this tree? There's sticker bushes down there. I'm not sure exactly where it is. I don't have a flashlight. I can't even see where the raccoon is. Eventually, I slid out on the, the one of the lower branches as far as I could get, and I got away from the tree as far as I could, and I ran all the way back to the farmhouse, got a flashlight, and that was kind of the start of my uh, my calling career for uh, predators was, uh, was, was raccoons. Yeah, and now 35 years later, you still love predator hunting. Yeah, you know, I do a lot of bow hunting for deer and everything, and I still still uh, get a lot of deer and everything. Uh, I've hunted uh, moose, bear, caribou. I've been all over Canada and up and down the East Coast hunting uh, different things. But, boy, when I see a red fox coming uh, and I am the hunt, I become the hunted. Exactly. Does, does it still get your blood pumping too? Like, you know, every time I call in a red oh, fox, yeah. I, mean, uh, I often got to say, all right, calm down, relax. Just it's only a fox. You know, it's a, it's, <laughs> over here it's classified as a feral animal. We can hunt it, you know, all year round. There's no, there's no season on red fox over here. You know, we don't have any greys. And every time they come in, I just my heart just instantly just goes from like, you know, 80 beats a minute up to like 200. Yeah, you know, you tell people this and they and they kind of laugh at you, and then you take somebody out, and uh, you know, I've taken out some some new guys and shown them the ropes, and and you get all that, and I've seen guys that have been quite quite accomplished hunters uh, for large uh, mammals, and you get them out, and they see this set of eyes come bounding in, and the animals come running at them, and they're not, you know, they're not used to that. Uh, it's just totally changed uh, the whole outlook on what's going on, and and uh, they really like it, and I think if it ever gets old for me, I'll stop. You know, it's just. Uh, it's it's uh, been a lot of fun over the years. Yeah, and I, I think it takes skill. People, you know, sometimes may see. I mean, especially in Australia at the moment, um, that you know, that might not take much skill to call in it. You know, say a fox with an electronic caller. But I mean, you know, I mean, it's basically you know, you got a decoy and a, and a fox pro or, or any type of electronic game call. I mean, it's actually you know, fooling a fox into thinking. I mean, that's a distressed rabbit. I mean, I, I think it's quite quite a uh, great skill to have. Well, you know, I think actually it's there's a lot more involved than people think. I think I just throw the caller out there, turn it on, you kill an animal. And, and really, you know, you have to enter that area from a particular area. You have to do your scouting. You have to figure out where the animals are. Uh, you know, I'm looking for things like, um, you know, these animals will bury food. They'll have food caches a lot of times. I've watched uh, uh, fox in particular areas, and, and a certain fox will use a particular food cache. I've watched fox bury uh, say a chipmunk or a squirrel or parts of one that they're not eating and come back later and get it. So being able to identify these things as well as the differences on tracks, you know, if you've got gray fox, a lot of times you've got what's similar to looks kind of like a three-legged track. It's how their front and back legs will overlap. They might do it on one but not the other. And a red fox tends to usually overlap the, the back tracks into the front tracks so it looks like a straight line, whereas say a house cat will have tracks on either side. So you'll have, you know, two tracks side by side, whereas a uh, fox is, a red fox is more in a kind of a, a straight single single file line with the back tracks overlapping front. All right, no worries. It was great to have you on the show today. Uh, so any, anything you might want to plug before we finish off? Well, you know, um, if uh, if you guys are just getting started in this too and you want to see how it's done, you know, there obviously there's, a, there's one or two great uh, videos floating around in uh, uh, Australia as well, but there are... 
you know, Fox Pro has a show called Fast and Furious. I don't know if you guys can get that over there or not. It's, it's on the Outdoor Channel right now, if you can get that through Satellite Link. Actually, this week, uh, they're showing it. It'll be on uh, three different times this week. Uh, they're having the Maryland hunts that we did uh, this past year. We killed, uh, I think, seven fox. I think we got six of them on film uh, for the show that's coming up this week. Uh, there's also, um, they've got a, a fur takers series of uh, uh, discs that are out right now. They've got fur takers and fur takers two that are out right now. They're pretty instructive videos. Fur takers three, they've already filmed the hunts on. I think that'll probably be out uh, before next hunting season or around that time. So um, those are some pretty good videos to, to check out. No, well, fantastic. It was great having you on the show, Pete. Uh, I'm sure people are going to get like a lot of great info from this and, you know, generally, Hopefully, after listening to this podcast, we'll be able to get out there, uh, you know, and start, you know, making those stands and start calling in some Red Fox. Yeah, I think it would also be real interesting to hear some feedback from guys, too, because I'm always interested to see how, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself an expert at anything, you know, and I think anybody that does is, is, is only kidding himself, you know, any, about the time we think we have an animal figured out, they do something completely different, and uh, Fox are no different that way, and I think that, you know, certainly in a in an area with a w- more warm environment like you have, things could definitely be different. Uh, you know, as I can say, I know that, uh, you know, Jeff Thompson and those guys, they went out and did quite well in Australia. They got quite a few fox and uh, they've got the pictures on their website. If you get on uh, Facebook also, you can see some of that. And uh, so, you know, it's uh, some American guys that went over there and did pretty well. And uh, but again, they were they were hunting with the Aussies and, uh, you know, they tended to call. Uh, cover a lot of ground by vehicle uh, using rather loud calls uh, to to just cover a tremendous amount of ground. So, you know, they're they're uh, you know things could be radically different. I think that some of the concepts are gonna are gonna be the same regardless of what predator you're hunting, whether it even be bobcat or or fox or coyote. Uh, there are certain things that you're gonna want to do. You know, you're not gonna want to be seen walking into a set. You're gonna watch your downwind side. You're gonna Try and use brush and understand that you can call an animal out to the edge of a brush pile, but it's going to be much harder to call them out in the open. You know, these are these are things that are going to be helpful to know re- regardless of what animal it is you're hunting. That's right. And, I, and I'm sure those guys said Australians were some of the best hunters in the world, right? You know, I, I, I've yet to meet an Aussie I didn't like. So, you know, I, I've worked with a bunch of them uh, here in Maryland in, in the business that I work in, and uh, they've been some great guys. So nothing but good things to say about the Aussies. Uh, that's right. Uh, very good words. You weren't going to say anything different. <laughs> oh, no, I have no reason. Have no reason to. Uh, recently had uh, recently had a chance to spend uh, time uh, riding motorcycle with one of them over here, and uh, had a good time uh, riding around a couple different states with him as well. Yeah. Oh, well, as I said, anytime you want to head down for a uh, fox hunt, you know, you let us know. I'm sure we'll be able to accommodate you down here sometime. So. That'd be great. All right. Well, that's it for uh, episode two, Hunting Red Fox with Pete Hower. So tune in next time. Take care. You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, brought to you by AussieUsedGuns.com.au, the premier classifieds of new and used firearm sales. Thanks for listening. See you next time.